0: Hello, and welcome to the Salem On The Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The longest part of the night rests just in front of the most brilliant part of dawn. Sunrise is impressive, but just before dawn is where all the beauty of a new day rests. In life, it's the darkness just before the dawn that's the hardest part to step into. That's also where the brilliance is found. And in this new study of First Peter, we'll discover the blessings that can come in the darkest nights of our soul. If you've got your Bibles or if you want to grab the ones that are in front of you, we're in First Peter chapter 3. Go ahead and pull those out. This is now the fifth part of this series, uh, and we have just crested into uh, the third chapter. There are five chapters in total. We'll speed up a little bit as we go through this final section, um, but uh, but that's where we're going to go today, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read those to you in full in just a minute. I debated back and forth about who I could get to read them. You're going to understand why I chose just to read them myself in a minute, because uh, it's awkward to put somebody... In fact, I wanted to get a married couple to come up and read this passage today, but that That would be really awkward back and forth, so just let me read it, and I'll read it in just a minute. But uh, let me catch you up to speed before we read it. We are in 1 Peter, and the title of this series is Dawn is Coming. And the reason that we have talked about Dawn is Coming is because Peter is hoping that he can encourage a people who are living in the context of suffering to look forward to the future that Christ has for them. There's a resurrection hope that's coming. There's new life that's coming. We need to live into that. And Peter does what we often do in the context of suffering. He starts inside with us, and then he works out to everybody else who's involved in the conflict. So in the context of this, where there's these trials that are coming onto the churches, Peter very early on says, okay, look at yourselves and look at the gift that God has given to you, the new birth, the inheritance that is yours, and you don't have to do this alone. Chapters 1 and chapters 2 remind us that, yes, the gift is ours, it's, it's mine, but it is all of ours who are the body of Christ, and God is building us up together in that way to live into the fullness of that gift. But then, at the end of chapter 2, Peter makes a turn, and that turn continues today, where he's no longer talking about what's happening inside of you and me, and the, the, the new life that God's wanting to deal with inside of us, he turns outward to start looking at others and saying, okay... If you, in fact, are living as if the resurrection is coming, that's going to change the way you interact with other people. Last week, we saw that he just went straight for the jugular. Right? He just went straight to the heart of the problem. And he said, what about those who are hurting you the most? He started with the emperor himself, the emperor, the governors, all of those, those who are in charge, for those who are slaves in this society, he went to the masters, and he looked particularly at them. And the reason he did this, and this, I talked about this a little bit last week, Our new life together, this new life that God has given to us, our new life together always leads us to new life with others, even when we aren't too fond of the others who are in our lives. It's always going to lead us to new life with other people, even if we're not fond of them, even if we don't like them, even if they are opposed to us, even if they would rather our life not be existent. It leads us to new life with them. Those who opt to, to, to not like us, those who opt uh, to not be in our circle, those who are opposed to our very existence, it's always going to lead to them. And that's why Peter takes us directly to the emperor himself. He says, you know, We're not going to do what other people would supposedly do. If the emperor is opposing them, some people are like, just get rid of the emperor. Let's come up with a plot to to destroy him, to hide from him, perhaps, or run away from him, to avoid him. We're not going to handle it in any of those ways. Because within this upside-down kingdom, might does not make right. Right? That's not how Jesus' kingdom works. We're not going to fight and oppose them. We're not going to, as I talked about it last week, we're not going to imitate their behavior. They hit me on the cheek, I'm going to hit them on the cheek. They cut off my hand, I'm going to cut off their hand. We don't imitate their behavior, Peter says. And we also are not going to isolate ourselves. We're not going to hide from the problem. We're not going to run away from the emperor. We're not going to be a self-enclosed uh, enclave and, and avoid any interaction with those who oppose us. We're actually going to do this third way. We're going to submit to the emperor. Why are we going to do that? Because we're going to infiltrate the emperor's life. As people who are called to love, the love of God that is on full display in Jesus Christ, we are called to carry that love to even those who oppose us. Right, it's like uh, some of you might be familiar with this phrase, keep your friends close, but you're what? Closer? Enemies, right? Like That could have been a Christian phrase. It wasn't. It was in the art of war by Sun Tzu. But you know, it could have been our phrase for very different reasons. You keep your friends close, your enemies closer, not because, you know, for Sun Tzu, he wanted to destroy them. You just keep them close so you know how to destroy them and know what their weaknesses are. For Christians, you keep them close so that you can share with them the love of God in hopes that they might experience it themselves and, and live into the fullness of what God wants for them. We want the best for them in their life. That's why we hold them close. That's why we do this. And we do all of this because that was Christ's example for us. That's where we ended last week. We do this because Jesus did it for us, and in the same way Peter says, that's how you have to live your life. If you're a follower of the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you got no choice. This is what you submit to when you come to it. And that leads me directly into today's topic. Submission in marriage. Woo! (laughs) This is a fun one. right? Nobody likes submission, but when it comes to the closest relationships in our lives, even fewer enjoy it in the context of marriage. Can I get an amen? Like that's, that's where we are. We just don't want to talk about that. We won't want to think about that. And now you understand why I didn't want to get a married couple to read this passage to each other because uh, I could have started a fight on stage just by doing that right there. So let me read this passage to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Listen to what it says. Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands so that, that's a, because, a reason why, Even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conducts, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Don't adorn yourselves outwardly by braiding your hair, by wearing gold ornaments or fine clothing. Rather, do this. Let your adornment be your inner self, with the lasting beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in God's sight. It was in this way long ago that holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Now, wives, be, I'm, I'm like, let me keep reading. i me just stick to this, stick the passage right here. You have become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fear alarm you. Husbands, here's this phrase, in the same way. In the same way, show consideration for your wives in your lives together, paying honor to the, women, uh, to, to the woman as a weaker sex, since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I know that was hard for y'all to say right there. I understand. We do, that, we do that compulsively, but then you get to a passage like this, and you don't. Uh, just by raising of hand, very quickly, has anyone ever heard a sermon on this passage right here, First Peter chapter? Anyway, we've got, we've got a few. Here's the interesting thing. It's not in our lectionary at all. So if you grew up Methodist and you were under people who who were uh, uh, preaching always from the lectionary, you've never heard this in your life because it's not there. And most of my Methodist brothers and sisters are like, thank God it's not there. I don't have to do it. I can avoid it. Unfortunately for you, I grew up Pentecostal, and uh, we love this stuff right here. Like, this is... This is where we go all the time, right? Don't wear makeup, don't wear jewelry, don't do, you know, don't cut your hair off like that was all us. We were all over it. In fact, you know, I think back as I was reading this passage, um, I think back to uh, the preacher's wife that I grew up with. Now, I don't remember her name because we called her Granny, um, which was terrible. She really wasn't that old, but everybody called her Granny. She didn't have grandkids even, right? She, she didn't have any of that, but we called her Granny, and Granny, uh, she was the stereotypical Pentecostal woman. No makeup, no jewelry, but, uh, and she didn't cut her hair, and, but women did this. Some of y'all remember this. Some of y'all had it, I bet. Uh, women just let that hair pile up, right? It just, it was Marge Simpson before Marge Simpson was ever a thing, like that bouffant went up on Granny's head, and in a Pentecostal circle, that became a weapon of mass destruction, because the only way to hold that up was bobby pins. And uh, when you start dancing or running or something like that, those things start flying all over the place. And they could kill somebody. Um, and I'm pretty sure they sent at least a couple of my friends to the hospital at some point in time. But that's, that's the culture that I grew up in. In fact, if I go on Sunday nights to McDonald's still, I know when the holiness crowd rolls in. Right? There's that long hair. There's long jean skirts because it's Sunday night. We don't have to dress up as nice. And, uh, and they just roll right into McDonald's after church is over. I, I always get it. And, and you've probably experienced that as well. All of that goes right back here to this passage. This passage right here became the linchpin for a lot of the way that we interpreted our practice and the way we live in the world, and that leads me to a really, really important point that I, I don't normally do this or kind of circumvent off to talk about things in this way, but I think I need to today. I have to say this before we go on, that these seven verses right here have single-handedly been the cause for massive problems in our Christian history, massive problems, Huge problems that don't just come down to the way that women wear their hair with bobby pins or not. That's, that's not the problem. I wish I could say that the worst thing that ever happened was when granny's bobby pins flew across. That, that's really not the worst thing that's ever happened. The worst thing that's ever, and one of the worst things that I've ever heard happening, based on this passage and an interpretation, is a scandal that just recently broke a couple weeks ago with Pastor John MacArthur and some people in his church. Uh, in fact, it broke out with a married couple who was in the church, or a formerly married couple named David and Eileen Gray. Some of you may have heard this story, because a few weeks ago, David Gray was brought up on charges. The charges that were presented before him were sexual assault and pedophilia. That's what he was charged with. It was a case that was brought before the California courts. It was a situation that I would argue, many have argued, that could have been minimized if the church had stayed out of the way in this interpretation right here. It's a problem that was only exacerbated in the church. You see, David Gray had a long history of abuse of his wife and his children. Abuse that was brought before the church by Eileen herself. And as she brought it before the church, she received word from the church that she should go home and in light of what Peter says here and in light of what some of Paul says, should submit herself to her husband. In the context of the church, the church could help heal their marriage and they could go forward, but she should do that, and she did for a while go back and do that very thing. And then, when it became too much to bear, she went out on her own and she divorced David. And at that point, John MacArthur, along with the elders of the church, stood in front of the church and publicly excommunicated Eileen for leaving her husband in that space. And she was abandoned by her community of faith, and David remained a leader in the church. Only to find out years later that the abuse continued, the abuse escalated amongst the children, and he was then brought up on these charges of pedophilia and sexual assault. She had told them all along. She had told the church all along that he had abused her children. She had told her all along, and the response was the Bible says this. In fact, the quote that she offered to the California court is this, or, uh, that the, uh, the prosecutors brought before the court said this, The wife repeatedly told the appellant to stop, but he said to her he was responsible for God before God to keep the family in line, and he had the Bible to support his actions. He used this passage to do that. And when she was divorced and excommunicated and she fell away from the faith and all of those things, the church still stood beside this man. And all of this persisted, and hear me very carefully, it all persisted because of a particular interpretation of this passage right here. He felt the Bible supported his actions. And let me say as clearly as I can with no, no qualms, making no qualms about it, the Bible, the words of Scripture, in no way support this toxic masculinity, in no way. They in no way are supporting exactly what happened in that, that, I, that place. And, and to be even more specific, what Peter is talking about here in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 do not support the behavior that is going on here. And I realize that as I say that, that probably leaves more questions than answers. But I feel like I need to say that because even though this took place in California, I've heard it come out of pulpits in our county, in our community, and I've heard it amongst people around us. And I think it needs to be stated so that it stops the abuse that is inherent within the context of the church. And so if I'm going to make a claim like this, then I do want to back it up, and I want to suggest what the right interpretation would be and why we've gone wrong. And there's a couple reasons that I think, first of all, we've gone wrong when we've interpreted this passage. The first reason that we've gone wrong is we've imposed our understanding of marriage on the first century context. Our understanding of marriage is the soulmate and it's romantic and it's embedded in romanticism and I choose who I want to choose because I love them deeply and I'm connected to them. That is not the way marriage worked in the first century. Marriage was not a relational contract of coming together. It was largely a social contract of joining families together, of uniting business together, of pulling properties together. It was something that people did in those days to bridge the gap between neighbors To say we will be family now and we will unite our families, unite our wealth under the contract of marriage. So that's the first problem. It's two different forms of marriage and we need to get that on the table. The second thing that comes up is oftentimes we read this passage as if Peter is writing a self-help book on marriage to the first century. Like you could go into a first century Barnes & Noble and find it somewhere between men are from Mars and women are from Venus and sex begins in the kitchen. right? And that's not it. This is not a self-help book that Peter was writing to the first century to help them understand the context of their marriage. Peter is not addressing five keys to a better marriage. He's taking Christ followers who are struggling to remain Christ followers into the depths of their struggle. He's causing them to go back and look at the very places that are hard for them to remain followers. And a ton of those people who were persecuted, hear me carefully, a ton of the people who were persecuted were women because women made up the majority of the church in the first century. In fact, the first century uh, records suggest to us that the, that the vast majority of Christians were women in that space. Women who funded the church, women who controlled the finances of the house, would then give the finances to the church. And what daddy didn't know didn't hurt him, right? That's what they figured. They'd just take the funds from the house, they'd funnel them over to the church, and they would, they would kind of prom- uh, promulgate the church. They'd lift up the church. And this This activity right here is the activity that created pools of persecution, not just in a massive level from the government, but it created tension within the home. It created tension within these families. And what Peter is addressing here is very important for us to remember because we still face it in the context of our, our most intimate relationships, even marriage. What Peter's addressing here is the lack of humility that men and women had and were showing to one another in their primary relationships. That's what it is. There's a lack of humility that comes in the context of these closest relationships, and we know this is true because of a single phrase, and I I tried to highlight it as we were reading through. There's a single phrase Peter uses over and over again, in the same way. Women, in the same way, or wives, in the same way. Husbands, in the same way. Now, what is he talking about? What's in the same, in the same way, what? In order to understand that, you have to go back to chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2 where he says the way that Jesus lived his life in full submission to others around him. That's what he's referring to. Women, in the same way that Jesus lived his life in full submission to everyone who he came in contact with, that's how you should live your life. Husbands, in the way that Jesus lived his life in full submission to everyone he came in contact with, that's how you should live your lives. In the same way that Jesus did it, that's what you do. That's how you live your lives from those who are far beyond you, who you don't have close relationships with, like government officials, slave masters, to those who are in your most intimate setting, to those who are closest to you. You learn how to live in submission even with those who are close. And on the surface, you might think that's easy, and then you get married, right? And you realize, that's not easy, That's not an easy reality to live into where I can submit myself to the person who I'm close to all the time to kind of live my best self before them. In fact, they often will get my worst self. I'll give my best self to someone else, but my worst self comes home in those environments. That's how we often live our lives. And what Peter is saying here, wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives and your life together in the most intimate of spaces that you have submit to one another. And this is where it gets really close to home with the way of Jesus. As I've said many times in here, early followers of Christ didn't refer to themselves as Christians. Others referred to them as Christians, but oftentimes they would refer to themselves as followers of the way. Followers of the way. We're followers of the way, and Peter, of course, in this space goes, all right, in the same way. If you're followers of the way, in that same way, how are you going to live your life? How are you going to choose to live your life in that way? By, and he's going to say we do it by submitting ourselves at every single level of life. Now, let me take you back to the first century for a moment. Remember, the group of people that Peter is talking to, they don't have partners who are followers in this way. Many of the women who are coming, their spouses are not followers of the way. They've not come to church. They've not converted or whatever language you want to use. They're not in it. The women are followers of the way, but their spouses are not. So at home, it may not be mutual participation in a lifestyle of submission. It is best when both partners are living in mutual submission and they can experience that mutu- the blessing of mutual submission to one another. But for many of the women in this space, they're not. They don't have followers of Uh, don't don't have spouses who are followers of the way. And so when Peter's saying this, he's saying, yeah, you still have to live this way. And here's why, because this way becomes contagious. This is the way that others around you start to live into this. It's not what you say to your partners. It's not what you say to those who are closest in your life about your faith in Christ. It's how you live your life in front of them. It's how you demonstrate your faith through action, not in words. And so Peter starts with the women, because as I've already said, they're in the majority, and he spends most of his time talking to the women, because they are in the majority, and he says this, wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands. Why do we need to do this? It's really simple. I've already talked about it. So that even if some of them don't obey the word, they may be won over without a single word spoken by you. You don't have to say anything, wives. You don't have to say anything in that conduct. They're going to see your conduct, and when they see the purity and the reverence of your life, then they will be won over. And we're instructed to do all of this so that we can, and he goes on, through the mutual act of submission, we can fulfill the mission of God. That's it. Your act of submission, husbands and wives, this mutual act of submission is the way that the mission of God gets fulfilled in the world. It's how God continues to spread God's mission, or God's love and God's mercy and God's peace around the world. It's through this mutual act of submission, and of course, Peter doesn't leave the husbands out. It just takes him a little longer to get there. But in verse six, he, or verse six and seven, he, he turns back to them, or seven rather. He says, "Husbands, in the same way, show consideration for your wives together." paying honor to the women as the weaker sex, since they too are also heirs of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. I love it. You know, in some way, Peter knew that men are like, have a short attention span. He just gives it to us short and sweet. Women, there's like six verses for you. Men, there's like one verse for us. It's like, men, hear me. Just do this. Just do it. That's what you need to do, and if you don't, here's the consequence. Have a good day. All right, that's And so he does. So he gives it to them short and sweet in this way, and he tells them what the the consequence is. The consequence is that God won't hear their prayers. What are their prayers? That their spouse might be converted. This prayer can't be answered in an environment where mutual submission is not uh, a real thing. So for women, for the women who are there, Peter will turn to focus on the interior self because that's their struggle predominantly. He, can't, he, he understands that in this environment, women don't understand their interior worth because they're constantly berated. They're constantly set up as status symbols. They're constantly objectified in the context of the world. And so Peter turns to the interior self. For the men, he focuses more on acknowledging those places in society where men have denied women their full humanity. And this is the, the sort of tension between the two. Ladies, listen, I mean, Peter says it pretty clearly. Peter says, I know it's customary for you to think that you're supposed to adorn yourself for your spouse. You're supposed to fix up all the outer self. It's all about appearances and what you wear, and there's very little acknowledgement about what's going on on the inside. But in this new way of loving each other, here's what I want you to do, ladies. In this new way of submitting to your husbands, I want you to do the work of working on the inside. I want you to do the work of focusing on that interior self. It's far more than your garments and gold he goes on and he says, don't adorn yourself with outward, outwardly by braiding your hair, wearing gold garments or fine clothing. Rather, let your adornment be the inner self with lasting beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Why, why does he do this? Why does he do this particularly for the women? In this culture, Peter's speaking to these women who are, regarded not, who are not regarded as human beings. They are less than human in this, in this society. And so he will speak to them in this way so that they can have their full humanity restored so they can acknowledge it and live into it. And in living into it, that will be the real beauty that's displayed to their spouse, something that their spouse has never seen, something that their spouse has never acknowledged. And Peter wants to do that. And I think, you know, as I, as I think about the implications of this for us in our world, I absolutely do see some parallels. I think there are many, and maybe you're one of those women who are here. Let me speak to you for just a minute. Maybe you're one of those women who are living under the weight of objectification in this world. And Peter's words ring true to you as well. One of the most beautiful ways in which you submit to those who are in your life is to find your inner worth and humanity. I think that's true. It's not about what you put on. It's not about the the filters that you put on. It's about the inner beauty that is there. It's about the way in which you develop that spirit that will be contagious that will be on full display to those who are closest in your life, be it your spouse or your best friend, whatever it is. Maybe you need to work on that. But I don't think that's universally for women. And I don't think, just in the same way it wasn't back then, I I think many of us could struggle in this. Men, you could struggle in this way too, where it is about your accomplishments in the world, what you've done. It may be about your appearance and and how you exercise or what you do with your physical appearance and how you appear before others, but it may be the image of success that's put on the outside, and the same advice would come back to us. Continue to focus on what it means to be made in the image of God and what God is doing on the inside of you, to build your confidence there, not on what's outside and what you've done, but on who you are. That could be a powerful thing for you. And, And again, I know the weight may tend to lean towards women, but it goes for both. And the message that comes true for the men is, is, again, it's predominantly a male thing, but it could go both ways for men or women. For many of the men in this ancient society, Peter comes before them and he recognizes that they are dehumanizing other people with their actions. That they are denying the full humanity of their spouse. They are denying the full humanity of others who are in their employment. They are denying that humanity. And Peter offers a corrective. And in that space, he says, don't deny that humanity. The way, the way he says it, as I said earlier, show consideration for your wives in your life together. And here's the truth. Men, I know that may hit with you because there may be spaces in your life where you have dehumanized other people, you've mistreated other people, you've treated them less than human, whether it's your spouse or your children or anything else. But ladies, there's space for that in, in, in your lives as well. There's space in all of our lives where we just treat people as commodities, as objects, where we can get what we want out of them, not for who they truly are. And in this way, Peter's message goes across gender lines. It's not male, female, husbands, wives, but it's something that we all need to hear and receive. As followers of the way, we are called to live, what? In the same way. In the same way. The same way that Jesus modeled for us, in the same way that Peter would instruct ancient wives and ancient, hunts, or ancient wives to discover their inner dignity, we are called into a life of submission that will help us discover our full dignity that we find in Christ. We submit ourselves to Christ, we find the fullness of life that lies within Christ. In the same way that He would speak to husbands about mistreatment and dehumanization of others around them. Some of us need to hear Peter's words today for the ways in which we've done that, the ways in which we've objectified others around us, whoever they are. It could be be our boss. It could be, you know, as I said, our spouse, our children. It could be anybody. We're all prone to these things. And in the same way that Christ submitted his life on behalf of others, we need to submit our lives on behalf of others to see the full humanity of those who are around us. And you can do that in either way. You can sacrifice and you you can discard all the outer adornments. You can lay those aside and work on the inner self or you can start showing consideration and respect for those who are in your life who you have not shown respect for, who you have treated as less than human. Either way, this is the way. Either way, this is the path that we have chosen to follow If we are truly, as the early disciples described themselves, followers of the way. You've got to be on that way. You've got to be in that path in order to live into it. And this, brothers and sisters, is the way that is established at this table. This is the path that we follow. And it's there before us every single time we come and kneel at this altar rail. It's there. It's the image that's right there. It's the life of full submission that God fully demonstrates in the sacrifice of his Son and our Savior, Jesus. That's the way of submission. It's always there. It's always present. We participate in it and take it in. And now we have to let it out in our actions. We have to live into it. It's fun to talk about when this is at a distance, right? When it's the governors and the emperors and we get to think kind of theoretically about it. It's harder when in just a few minutes we'll get in the cars and close the doors and we're with those people (laughs) that we have not submitted to in our lives. More difficult there. And that's the space. If we can truly do it at this most intimate level through our actions, and Peter says that'll start transforming every atmosphere of your life change everything about your life. And so as we close today, as we come and kneel at this table, I know some of you will come and be prepared to receive from this table the gift that is life and in a life where you have just focused on outer adornments and you have felt the weight of objectification. What I pray for you today is this, that God will fill your interior self with meaning and beauty, and humanity. And for those of you who come to this table today and you have rested under the weight of dehumanization, objectification of others, I hope that you will receive this loaf of submission as a model for how you can live your own life in submission to everyone you come in contact with. Would you stand with me? Gracious God, This is your table. These are your gifts to us, your people. As we come before your table this morning, God, we ask that you would teach us the way, the way to live our lives in submission to you and to others. Give us the strength and wisdom to do that each and every day of our life.